teaches them the Beatitudes just before this passage. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those that mourn. He gives them the paradigm of this is really what it is to be blessed in walking with God. These are the characteristics of someone who walks with God. And then this passage flows on naturally because he says, if you do the Beatitudes, you know, if you're a peacemaker and if you suffer for God's sake and all of those things, you'll be the light and the salt of the world. The great St. Augustine said that the Beatitudes that come just before this are just the perfect standard of the Christian life. It's what we aim for if we're casting our eyes up and aiming at God, aiming at being like God. It's the Beatitudes. But then it leads to being salt and light. But what does Jesus mean exactly by being salt and light? That's what I want to think about really this morning, and hopefully it'll be for our encouragement and our building up as we look to move through the world. I want to firstly explain what he means by salt and light as best I can with the help of God's Spirit. And then, taking these ideas together, because I think they do stand together, apply it. See how actually we are called to be salt and light, what it looks like, and think about what it might look like in our lives and experience. What does Jesus mean by saying you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world? A lot of ink has been spilled looking to explain those things. I don't know how many theories I read this week about what Jesus meant by salt. You know, you get lots of different explanations like, well, it's flavor. You know, we're meant to add a bit of, bit of oomph, a bit of excitement to the world because we're Christians. Or it's a preservative or it's the things that we know salt to be. I think before we think about what, the, what he means by the, the salt and the light, the, the, these are things that do something. You know, the light shines and helps us see, makes things less dark, and the salt certainly preserves things. But first, what does Jesus imply by using these metaphors of salt and light? What does that imply about the world and the situation around us? Well, if salt is to preserve decaying, then... Almost certainly, Jesus is saying the world around you is in some sense decaying. Salt use stops food from going bad, especially in this ancient context uh, where, you know, it's the middle, middle of the desert really is where geographically they're situated. And so you only need about two hours for a piece of food lying out to become completely useless. There's not a refrigerator in sight, definitely not a freezer. So it's, it's hard, but we need to try and go back to go think of the power of that image in its original context. So things go bad. So Jesus is saying, this world is actually going bad all around you. Uh, Romans 8 puts this beautifully, that the, the whole creation, our experience of the world is um, subjected to corruption, to decay. It's left to itself. It's the way it naturally goes. And that's an assumption that Jesus is making. There's something that you need to do because the world around you has its own natural condition that it's following. And it's also pretty dark. It's clear elsewhere that Jesus calls Satan the the ruler of this world. The world in and of itself, within its own systems, its own greatest ideas, is subject to sin. He's saying you exist in a world full of darkness. It's in the human heart. It's in the systems. It's all around. It doesn't in and of itself, the world, produce 
any light. It doesn't in and of itself produce the goodness and the glory of God. You know, Jesus knew his Old Testament, and it's, it's unimaginable that he wasn't thinking of the very beginning of humanity, the fact that we had uh, unmerited, unmitigated access to God's presence and God's light, and we fell from it, and we have been struggling with the darkness in our own hearts and the darkness in the world around us ever since. And so he's first, before he's telling them anything about what they are or the answer, he's saying, this is where you are. This is the world that I'm calling you into. My goodness, he's saying, blessed are those who mourn and who suffer for righteousness' sake. Why would that happen if the world wasn't full of darkness and didn't hate those who love and who really serve God? Hates them because they reflect the light of God. And when that shines on somebody's heart and their darkness and their own commitment to their own pride and arrogance and not wanting to bow the knee to anyone, they don't like that. So he's assuming that the world is decaying and corrupted and also that it's dark. And what's he saying that they are within that? Well, the salt is the preservative, but it's more than that. You know, salt is a, it's an old idea in the biblical text, especially in the New Testament, and uh, sorry, in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it has this idea of permanence. Quite often, salt would be used when they were making uh, an old covenant or a promise saying, effectively, this is going to last. This is something that's going to last. I'm making a promise that I don't ever want to break and that God would use that to make promises that he didn't ever want to break for eternity. And so by Jesus using this and bringing it up to the minds, in the minds of his original audience, the disciples, he's saying, you are part of God's forever promise. You are part of what he's planning to do that will last forever. That's what he's meaning by salt. And then similarly, the light's not an unconnected idea. It's got a long history of symbolism in the Old Testament. That's just wonderful. You see so much of it in the prophet Isaiah. He uses light for God's saving a people who are in utter darkness, people that Israel had decided that were their enemies and cast off the people towards the north of the region. They thought they were a bunch of half-breeds and inbreeds and thought they're hopeless. He's saying light is going to dawn on them because that's where Jesus started preaching in his public ministry. Light, God says in the Old Testament, is going to spread out. The light of God's revealing his saving power is going to spread out to people who aren't originally Jews. It's going to go out to the world. Light of God is what's going to draw all people from all over the place and all kinds of different backgrounds. It's an old idea. And then, of course, we know from John 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm it. I'm that promise. I am that guarantee that God gave that he's going to save people and he's going to draw people to himself. I am that light. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. It's not just Jesus. This is the wonderful thing about being connected to them. He's saying, essentially, by bringing these ideas of salt and light together amidst a dark and decaying background, he is saying, you're my disciples, and that's who he's addressing. This is for us. It was for the people he spoke to that day, and it's for us now. And he's saying, God has a plan to renew everything and make everything better in this creation that's gone wrong. That's a forever plan. And now that the forever plan is here, through me, I have a part for you to play within that. I want you to shine and draw people to God. 
That's what he's doing by bringing the ideas of salt and light together. You know, we were made for this. All people were. But especially as those who've trusted in Christ, our privilege is to be able to get back to what we were made for. In the beginning, God made us male and female. And it's, it's an unbelievably powerful text that I don't think we'll ever exhaust the meaning of, that he made us in his image and in his likeness to reflect something of God within his creation. As the very pinnacle of creation, after he'd made everything else, he gave us a role and a job within the creation that no other creature was given. And we do that by reflecting something of the light and the glory of God. And Jesus is in this passage as restoring that vocation and that calling to the people. Because light symbolizes the glory of God, his revelation, his saving power. I think what makes it clearer than anywhere is in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where Paul says, Let light shine out of darkness. God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light and the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And so it's like now from the beginning to now, God has been awaiting to unleash this plan where Christ is the perfect representation of who God is and all the glory of God is now face to face with the people who he wants to reflect that and saying, now you've seen what I'm like. You've seen what the blessed life is. You've seen how to act Now you can go and shine because the revelation is complete. My forever promise is here. Go and shine in the world. He brings the light and the salt together beautifully to show us what we're meant for and what we're meant to do. That was, you know, uh, when the United States was founded, particularly in Massachusetts. I think it was the first governor of Massachusetts who took this text and made it an idea for the hope that could be built, that they would be a shining city on a hill. And it it was meant to have a strong religious connotation, that they had escaped the persecution in England at the time because of the wars that were occurring there, and they could set up a society where God could be glorified and where people could come to have freedom to do that. Because that's what we were made for, you and I, was to glorify God. And so it's this ideal and this hope that we can do that, that we can do that to the best of our ability. We can be salt and light. Well, it's an amazing teaching. It's powerful from Jesus' own lips on the Sermon on the Mount. But what does it mean for you and me then? If that's what salt and light meant to Jesus and his original audience, how do we do that? How do we live it out in practice? Well, I think three ways that this morning that this text can be applied to us. And firstly, I think that we ought to and we can acknowledge the darkness. I think it's clear from the text that we need to take Jesus' words on this seriously, acknowledge the darkness and the decay. At times we can be in Christianity and and form something of a Christian bubble where we're not exposed to an awful lot of it. We mostly live in church and do churchy things, and so 
it's very easy to forget just how much darkness and decay that is out there, whether that's not being mindful and exposed to the difficulties of the church in the west of the world, because we have it pretty good. Although I think the other churches in different parts of the world would say we don't have it good because we lack their zeal and their passion. There's a way in which persecution especially really stokes the fire of faith. But I think also we can create a subculture where we're removed from just the difficulty and the darkness that people experience in the world. The hellishness in a way of what people have to go through in poverty and in difficult or abusive relationships. There, there is no shortage in our culture, in our world, in our workplaces even, of darkness. And I think that we need to realize that, acknowledge that, be ready to speak the light into that. You know, I was listening to a testimony from an atheist last night, a guy called Penn Jillette. He's very famous. I think he's a magi- magician. And he, sp- he tells the story about how uh, a Christian came up to him once and gave him a Bible and was just very honest with him and said to him, you know, I, I actually believe what's in here. I believe that we're all going to meet God. There's a heaven and a hell. And I want you to read it and I want you to be saved. I don't want you to go to hell. And do you know, this guy's a hardened atheist. And do you know what he said? He said, good for him. He said, I really respected that guy. Do you know why? Because if you believe that that's true, there's no excuse for not telling people. This is an atheist saying this. That if you really believe that's true, that should motivate you to tell anyone and everyone you can. He said, I've got no respect for people who believe that, but sit quietly on it, even if I disagree with it. It's a world of darkness, and we can be motivated because, friends, we have the light. The light of Jesus Christ has shone on us. We have it within us. And sometimes we need to wake up just, just how dark it is and how high the stakes are. We need to acknowledge the darkness. And secondly, this is a challenging one, but I think we need to not be useless. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, said that, I'm convinced there's nothing as useless in the world as a formal Christian. By that, he meant somebody who, you know, goes through the motions of being a Christian. You know, they dress or walk or act like a Christian in an outward manner, if that's even possible. But you know what he means. It's, It's kind of an identity that someone wears, but it hasn't really taken hold of them. Or they don't really show the fruit of God working in their life and the way they talk and the way they love others and the way they sacrifice themselves for others. Jesus uses these, they're kind of bizarre images, but they really make a point. What is the use in salt if it can't actually do what it was made for? Or, I mean, the next one's really absurd. Who lights, who lights a lamp or... What would it be like today? Who's got a bedside lamp and they put a black bin bag over the top of it? What's the point in that? It's ridiculous. And he's trying to say, guys, you have the light of God within you. Let it out at every possible opportunity. Maybe for us that means that when people ask us anything about our personal lives, about the faith that we have, is we're just always ready to go for it. You know, you feel that pang of fear of, oh no, I don't want to tell them because then they'll think I'm quite weird. <laughs> they'll think I'm one of those, you know, Bible-bashing Christians. And Jesus would encourage us this morning, of let it out. Because you know what? He's with you. He is with you. That's what the Beatitudes promise. Blessed are those. You have God's blessing and promise and presence resting in you and will go with you when you take that step of courage 
to share the light that you have. Because, friends, the world is desperate for it. And so, don't be the guy in Jesus' metaphor who's the useless salt and the lamp with the bin bag. Be the useful one. Be the one who fulfills the reason that they were made. A lamp was made so that you can read beside it. You were made so that you can reflect and shine the glory of God. Don't be useless. And thirdly, I think this is the great hope, is that we can be a shining city. You know, that image that he uses is beautiful and it's powerful. A shining city on a hill. No wonder people wanted to found a country in many ways based on that very metaphor and idea. And especially against the backdrop of, you know, in the ancient Near East and there's no electricity and there's no street lights. At night time, if you could see a township on a hill, you wouldn't miss it. It would guide everyone that was around it to where they were going. I remember growing up in Lewis, which wasn't as plagued by streetlights as, as Glasgow and its suburbs are. And, you know, at night time, if I was at my granny and Shen's and I went out in the country, you, you got that blackness where you just can't see your hand in front of you if, if the stars aren't out and they're covered by clouds. That's the blackness that he's presupposing, and he's saying, you get to shine in that. What God is doing through us as the church has an eternal significance, like that city on the hill that he's getting you to imagine. See, God is remaking everything into a city. You can read about it at the end of Revelation. All of history is going towards God remaking everything in creation as a beautiful city where the light of God lights up the whole thing, and there's no darkness anymore. And Jesus' call to us is you get to be part of that forever city because of God's forever promise within you and his commission to you to shine. Your good deeds, the things that you do, because that's what he, how he rounds it off this passage. He says that your good deeds may glory, give glory to your Father in heaven, to everyone around. So the things that you do the things that you're doing self-sacrificially, the good works that you're taking part in as a result of how Jesus has worked in your life, they bring glory to God. You're doing what you were made for, and they have an eternal impact and significance. What does that look like? Well, it might be being kind to somebody for no other reason than that you have the light of God within you. It might be if you're in a situation like we heard about in the NHS this week, that you speak up for that person who's being unrighteously harassed and bullied, even if it costs you something. That seems perfectly in keeping with the kind of person we read about in the Beatitudes. It might be that if we're challenged that our life is perhaps a bit too cozy and comfortable in a Christian bubble and experience, that we decide to go out into the darkness, empowered and encouraged by the fact that the light of Jesus is within us and goes with us, And we just think, you know what, it's time for me to go and shine in that darkness. Whatever it is, whether it's volunteering in the secular sphere or something that isn't overtly Christian. Because we are meant to be a light in the darkness. Not just continually reflecting and refracting the light around where we are and our experience. You don't know how significant just doing, going about your life, doing it to the glory of God rather than for yourself might have. I heard a wonderful story this week from Sinclair Ferguson. I was listening to him and uh, he told a story of a man who was very successful in the police in Glasgow, but he was in Sinclair's church and converted, I think, around the same time as him. And he was in the, it was 
a long time ago when he was in the police offices and he went past what was known as the typing pool. Now, that was new to me, but I think a lot of you probably know what I'm talking about. And the, the, so he heard the clatter, clatter of everybody typing away. And he said there was this one typewriter that made a noise and it had a, a regularity that none of the others had. It just had a punch that none of the others had. And he went past it day after day and it actually started annoying him. He was saying, this typewriter and whoever's at it has a regularity that none of the others have. And so he eventually he started asking some of the other sergeants and so on, going, who does that belong to, that, that typewriter? And um, he was told, oh, that belongs to Mrs. So-and-so. I can't remember her name, but uh, she's a Christian. And that was it. Because of that incident, that man began to seek God and became a Christian himself. Because of her diligence and the way she went about her work at her typewriter, it led to somebody being saved. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May we all have good deeds that glorifies our Father in heaven because we have the light of Jesus within us. May God bless his word to us this morning. That light of God's goodness and presence is what helps us see and make our way forward in the world as we look to be His disciples. Let us now sing and respond to God in the words of the well.